0: find the absolute best albums from the 1970s. I'm your host, Andy, and today we are taking a listen to Pink Floyd, one of the all-time great prog rock bands from the 70s. One of the all-time great bands, period, in my opinion, but I'm not doing this by myself. I've got a co-host with me uh, who's very excited for this one. I mean, in fact, just before we started recording, he was telling me, he thought, this band is just fantastic. That is really what I think. Oh, uh, by the way, which one's Pink? Aaron Kek is with me. How are you, Aaron? <laughs> uh, I'm good.
1: That's a good song. That's a good song.
0: Uh, yeah, I thought that was a good one for this. Yeah.
1: I have to say before we start, I am wearing my Pink Floyd shirt, which is uh, Pink Freud. It's a picture of uh, Sigmund Freud superimposed on top of the Dark Side of the Moon logo. and That nice. is the shirt that I'm wearing right now. I know the podcast is not a visual medium. But just close <laughs> your eyes and imagine that. That's what I'm wearing.
0: That's true. I, I do have, uh, I have a couple Pink Floyd shirts. I have a Wish We Were Here shirt. I have a wall shirt. And of course, I've got a little uh, wall poster on the wall here next to me. Uh, so yeah, this is a band that I uh, could, could consider myself a fan of, if that's not obvious already. Uh, but uh, it ties back a little bit actually to the first episode of this show in a couple different ways. That was the last time we heard Pink Floyd. We had a momentary lapse of reason as one of my original seven 80s albums. <laughs> We did have uh, and, a momentary lapse of reason, and then we <laughs> listened
1: to that album.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then that's also the last time where I actually had all of the albums in that episode already, which is the case for this one. These are all ones. I didn't have to get anything new for this oh, episode. Oh, wow. Uh, so this is really an episode of Aaron here. Wait, even like
1: the crap soundtrack from the movie that no one's heard of, like you had that one too? I did indeed have wow. that one already all too, right. yeah. You are a painful load yeah. fan.
0: Uh, so aside from uh, momentary laps, how, how much, how familiar were you with Pink Floyd prior to this? Uh,
1: in general, with all of these bands, I have heard the singles. I had heard, I had sat down and listened to Dark Side of the Moon all the way through. Uh, I believe The Wizard of Oz was playing on a TV screen while we were listening to it, just (laughs) for that purpose. Uh-huh. And other than that, I hadn't, so I'm not, I'm not familiar with the pre dark side stuff at all. I know the main singles from Side and The Wall and Wish You Were Here, and that's pretty much it. So I was going into The Wall cold, I was going into Wish You Were Here cold, uh, so yeah.
0: Nice, so well, I'm excited to hear what you think of all these. Obviously, this is a band I've loved for a long time. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon was actually one of the original three cassettes I had in my car when I was first learning to drive. Ooh! Uh, so that was really when I started to uh, become a fan of the band, listening to that album, Driving Around. Was and that a friend,
1: help or a hindrance while you were learning to drive?
0: <laughs> I guess I guess it was probably, well, it probably helped the album more than my driving. I think that's <laughs> like a great driving around album, I think. Yeah uh but really you know from then on that's i sort of started to fill the catalog out in both directions from then uh and the one thing that was new to me for this episode was i got a copy of nick mason's book about his time in the band inside out a personal history of pink floyd uh first published in 2004 but updated in 2017 uh and it occurred to me then that he actually is the only member who's been in the band consistently from the beginning which mm-hmm. is actually kind of interesting but so he had a lot of, he had a lot of good insight into the life of the band uh, and is a pretty good writer too so it was a very entertaining read uh, but let's dive into it. I mean the story of Pink Floyd begins at Regent Street Polytechnic where Roger Waters, Richard Wright and Nick Mason were studying architecture uh, beginning their uh, studies in the fall of 62. They begun to play music together with a few other students before Roger uh, ro- you know called up his childhood friend Sid Barrett. Uh, Born Roger Barrett, but then named himself after the jazz musician Sid Barrett, changing it to a Y instead of an I to differentiate himself. Uh, And by 1964, the nucleus of what would become Pink Floyd is starting to come together. So while Roger Waters is on bass, Rick White on keys, Nick Mason on drums, Sid Barrett on guitar and vocals, uh, and now performing under the name T-Set, but by 1965 had become the Pink Floyd sound a name chosen by Sid after two blues musicians, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And believe it or not, he changed their name because the show they were playing at, there was another band called T-Set, which (laughs) I have to imagine... In England was must have been like a go-to band name.
1: I that is fair, actually. Like I was, I was reading that story. And it's like, man, T. Set is a really specific name to have two bands with the same name playing on the bill. But yeah, they're British, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, Floyd Council. So you and I are both uh, from the Triangle area in North Carolina. Floyd Council is a blues musician from Chapel Hill.
0: I did notice that when I was looking that yeah. up too. That's pretty cool.
1: He's a he's a really good blues musician.
0: I'll have to listen to I haven't in my, in, dug into either Pink Anderson or Floyd Council before. so I I, I don't
1: know to, anything about Pink Anderson, but I host a local music hour in, in Chapel Hill on the radio, and we do occasionally play Floyd Council sometimes. He's good.
0: That's cool. Yeah, I'll have to check him out. Uh, one of my favorite anecdotes from this part of the book, uh, Mason says, as they were starting to get regular gigs, especially during a residency at a place called the Countdown Club in London, they would run out of material pretty often because they're playing like three sets a night and they got tired of repeating themselves across uh, each set so they started adding long improvised sections to the songs really just to pad out the sets <laughs> so they weren't playing the same thing over and over which is a really funny way to then sort of <laughs> become a crucial element of like a, not just their sound but an entire genre's sound really
1: this is going to come in really handy when they're ready to record animals we only <laughs> have we... five songs guys what do we do do we make an ep no no
0: It's going to come in handy, I think, on at least half of these, I think. On at least half of these, yeah. uh, But, you know, coupling that with the projections and psychedelic spectacle of their shows, they're kind of sort of setting the tone, you know, for an entire scene. They're, They're playing this early progressive psychedelic rock that a lot of English bands are starting to take notice of. And so by 1966, they're honing their craft, raising their profile. They drop the sound from their name and really... Uh, start gigging around town, around London. Uh, and this leads to uh, a contract with EMI in 67, where they released the singles Arnold Lane in March of 67, See Emily Play in June, and then their first full-length Piper at the Gates of Dawn in August. And that's, of course, still with uh, Sid Barrett at the head of the band. But almost immediately that album's uh, upon that album's release, they begin working on their next one. But this uh, Sid's behavior is starting to get more and more erratic. Uh, He's been using LSD almost constantly. Mason writes in the book that if you're ever at Barrett's flat, you had to basically bring your own food or drink because you literally would never know when something might be laced with it. (laughs) But in December of 67, they uh, recruit David Gilmore to the group, a high school pal of Roger and Sid's, uh, who had also been active in the London music scene, mostly in a group called Joker's Wild. He'd take over lead guitar during the gigs as Sid would often just end up wandering around the stage. And then uh, start joining him in the studio, then too, to continue to work on that next album, which by the end of January '68 they decide Barrett couldn't cut it anymore, and he's kicked out of the band officially. They spent the next few months finishing up what would become uh, Saucerful of Secrets, released in June of '68, uh, the only album to feature all five of those members uh, on the same time at the same time. So the first project without Sid came in the form of the soundtrack for the directorial debut from Barbet Schroeder, More, released in June of 69, uh, which is a mix of instrumentals and lyrical songs. Schroeder was a fan of the band and basically called him up to give both score-type songs and ones that would play diegetically for the characters in the movie. Uh, have you ever seen More? Uh, I haven't watched it before.
1: I've never even heard of it.
0: <laughs> Barbet Schroeder would become sort of a prolific director of the time, so, but this is, I think, a very early, very like beat and psychedelic-influenced movie that probably is not, I don't know how much is viewed outside of that context, really.
1: I'm going to say, as someone who also hosts a movie podcast on the side that covers movie history year by year a podcast which has <laughs> specifically reached the late 60s in movie history and i've never heard of this movie i'm gonna say it's not got that much cachet today
0: <laughs> maybe not have you have have you gotten the 69 votes in for this is of course we, the moonlight awards you can find the MoonlightAwards.com and all podcast services
1: we have uh we i don't uh depending on when i get around to releasing our episodes and when this episode drops like we're at the late 60s now we do have the votes in for 1969 the movie that wins is not the movie that i thought would which is rare so i'm excited about this year
2: Well, but the movie the that
1: actually does win, which is not the movie that I thought would, is the movie that I wanted to win, the movie that I think is the best. So
0: I'm happy about this. Nice. Well, I'll look forward to the episode. Yeah, uh, but uh, sadly, Barbet Schroeder will not look forward to that episode. But like,
1: yeah, but... is is not even remotely close. Actually, what's the title of the movie? More. Mm-hmm. Let me. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, just while, fun, while we're talking about Pink points. Floyd,
1: now I'm curious because we have we have. Uh, we have a panel of experts who are weighing in with their votes, and we let them write in their favorites, so let's see if any of them wrote in more for 1969. This I guess good, probably not.
0: This, this will be good crossover content if somebody has. I don't
1: know. Nope, sorry.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, well.
1: We got well, Boy, we got Burn, we got Z, we've got Medium Cool, we've got Cactus Flower, Hello Dolly, something called A Very Curious Girl, but no more.
0: Mm. Well, I have to imagine that there are indeed five <laughs> movies with more, with more of a lasting legacy than than Barbara Troder's more. But uh, regardless, in November of '69, they release the half live, half studio album "Amagama," a double album with four live tracks and five studio compositions. Contribute a few songs to the soundtrack for Michelangelo Antonioni's "The Zabrisky Point." That would make the cut. Is that that's 1970? I think that's
1: exactly. 1970. That we haven't gotten a 1970 yet, but that one I can definitely say has more cachet than more does.
0: <laughs> there has been, I believe, an Antonioni uh, movie already on the show, right?
1: A couple of them, in fact. Yeah, he's really good.
0: Yeah. Well, so there you go. Maybe he'll get a third one. But uh, first solo album, and this uh, this time uh, they do uh, help Sid record his uh, solo album, 1970, The Madcap Laughs, uh, recorded with the help of some of his friends like I said but then they also of course are tackling their next studio album the first one that we're going to cover here on the show their fifth overall Adam Hart Mother released in October of 1970 I'll play a little bit of that title track and then we will discuss the album
1: just a little bit of the title track
0: just a little bit cuz it is of course takes up the entire first side of this record it's the centerpiece of the album 20 minutes long 23 minutes long uh each member is credited with writing a little bit of it uh, what do you think of this one
1: I thought the I thought the title track is great I was surprised like I'm I started listening to it and I'm like how are they going to sustain this for 24 minutes they did I thought it was compelling I thought it was really good it was and maybe this is just a this is just a timing thing but i'm thinking mm-hmm. like long tracks from the late 60s that play around with found sound and do a lot of studio tricks i was comparing it in my head with revolution 9 i'm not mm-hmm. sure which of the two i prefer probably this one actually I think this is uh,
0: certainly more m- musical, I think.
1: Musical, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, so Adam Hart, Mother, like the title track, that opening side A suite is compelling. I thought it was really good. Side B, if you asked me to describe any of these four songs to you, I would have a hard time doing it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that is one thing uh, about this album is I think the the first side, obviously, the, the title track, the suite, Uh, Is the center is it's the star of the show and it sort of then overshadows the rest. I like the song "Fat Old Sun," which is uh, David Gilmour's kind of contribution to the side too. Uh, But that being said, I mean it's not it's not like a top ten song for me. I just yeah it's.
1: It's okay. It is definitely better than the one song from Side B that I would be able to describe to you, which is Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast, <laughs> which is, what is it, their roadie, their manager, someone affiliated with the band just describing his process of deciding what to eat for breakfast in the morning, and this is all intercut with, like, Foley effects of eggs cracking and yeah. and cereal popping in milk. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's their roadie Alan Stiles. For all the, the 13 talking, minutes. <laughs> definitely less of a uh a compelling track compared to adam heart mother but uh and really <laughs> compared to the four songs before it uh, total but uh this uh, the cover of course is uh by storm thorgerson a picture of a cow on the front this is his fourth collaboration with the band and would do basically every album cover from here out uh, but this one, surpri- what surprised me the most about this one was that this actually went to number one in the uk this album Right, which I think speaks to I guess what was whatever was people were listening to in the UK in <laughs> 1970. But.
1: Yeah, what was number two actually? The
0: year? <laughs> That's a great question.
1: <laughs> the week that let me see if I can find this. The week that Pink Floyd's "Adam Hart Mother" goes to number one. What is number two that week?
0: Yeah, because this is a even among the catalog we're gonna hear. This is not. If you had told me which one goes to number one, I would I would not have picked this one by a mile.
1: Right. Also, I love like Storm Thorgerson, who's going to come back and back. Like His mm-hmm. company is Hypnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which is very right. clever, uh, becomes very, very well-known for designing album covers for mostly prog rock bands, from what I've gathered, but Pink mm-hmm. Floyd especially. Um, not sure why this particular cover gets but, much play because it is a picture of a
0: cow um yeah he does say or and or nick mason mentions in the book that storm's kind of motivation for that was to sort of provide no expectation as to what you were about to hear yeah is, i guess in that case i think it works i think it's an intentionally kind of deceivingly plain sort of curious album cover
1: that that is fair there are a lot of different ways you could go in the uh, "We don't want you to know what you're about to listen to" vein, mm-hmm. besides a picture
0: of a cow. But <laughs> it is striking. I think it's a memorable cover, certainly.
1: <laughs> it gets released in October of 1970, uh, mm-hmm. and like this is this is the peak of rock and roll, right? Like this is the <laughs> right. this is the period in in history where you've got all right this is early
0: i mean led zeppelin has had at least three albums come out already at this
1: point so at yeah. the very beginning of october the number 1 album is uh cosmos factory by credence clearwater revival so that's cool the woodstock uh, woodstock soundtrack is number 2 okay joe cocker's got an album there's a lot of this is the uk there's track. a lot of white classic rock on this <laughs> list <laughs> You've got Joe Cocker, Chicago, the band, Grand Funk Railroad, the Moody Blues, and then Led Zeppelin three rises to rises to number one. Uh-huh. How long does it take an album to
0: hit the top here?: That's true. I guess I don't know what week it reached it. I have to imagine this doesn't feel like an album that has legs i have to I feel like it couldn't have taken that long to build, and then I assume precipitously drop off. Are you looking at the UK charts?
1: I'm looking at the American charts.
0: Oh, it was number one in the UK. That's the
1: oh, okay. Well, that explains it then. <laughs> yeah, those people will buy anything.
0: <laughs> well, while we're while you're digging through, I'll keep moving on. The uh, let's see. So after Adam Hart Mother Barrett records a second solo album, also with uh, some of the Floyd members on board, Barrett should be his final and second and final solo album the band uh, stock is still on the rise as mentioned number one in the uk for this album toured the u.s a couple times now they've toured australia for the first time here and in between all of that make some trips to abbey road to record album number six metal released in october of 71 that's m-e-d-d-l-e we play a little bit of the song fearless and then we will discuss that album
1: I'm glad you played Fearless because I have a note here that Fearless is the first song that we're covering that actually sounds like a Pink Floyd song. Like if you think about Pink Floyd as being the pinnacle of Pink Floyd as being Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, The Wall. Like this is the first song that they've done that I think fits into that.
0: I think yeah, this album in general is such like a turning point to this to where they're starting to go from the classic 60s psychedelic into what they're about to be, you know. I think uh, Fearless is a great song for that. I, I pick it mostly not just because it is a great song, but Echoes, the 23-minute song for side two of this album, uh, I think takes more than two minutes to get going, so I didn't want to play that one. But uh, <laughs> I do think that this is a huge leap up quality-wise from Adam Heart Mother. Yes, uh, And I think Echoes in general, I think this is something that came up with Genesis last week that I was talking to my dad about, they have their album *Nursery Crime* with has the big long song up front, and then makes all the rest of the songs forgettable. And so then the very next album, they do what they what Pink Floyd does here: put the big long song at the end, let the album build to it. And I think that is a much better way to structure the album. Not yeah, it doesn't also it doesn't hurt that the songs in general I think are all better here too,
1: with a couple of exceptions. A couple of exceptions maybe. There is *Seamus*, which is basically just a dog barking annoyingly in the background while they sing about the dog in this sort of fake blues riff. That song is crap, but the rest of the album...
0: I think that, and that one certainly shows up basically consistently at the bottom if you look at listings of, you know, rankings of Pink Floyd songs, which is certainly fair. I think it's Certainly the worst song probably they've ever done. But it also, it doesn't bother me too much because it's only like two minutes long. And then It's two minutes long, yeah. <laughs> you're in and you're out. If, if you're listening to the record, it's on the end of side one. You don't even have to, you can flip it over before it gets, even gets played if you want.
1: Or but. just flip the, or just, I mean, if you're listening on cassette even, like flip the album yeah. over, you miss the first two minutes of Echoes, but you still got
0: 21 and a half <laughs> minutes left. What are you yeah. missing, really? What do you think of Echoes, by the way? I, th- I think it's my favorite on the record for sure. I think it's a really good good song.
1: Echoes is my favorite on the record. It sounds like they're still like rough drafting Dark Side of the Moon. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. This is another one, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. Like, it's a really good song, but you, but like, we have the benefit of hindsight and retrospect and knowing Mm -hmm. what's coming. So you can listen to this song and be like okay this is really good but i know what's a what we're about to be talking about and this is clearly still building up to that like this is really good but they're gonna do this better later
0: yeah and i think think. too uh i I think that this is also a good point where uh, not only is the band sort of figuring out their sound that they're about to really hone more and more but i think uh all of the members' songwriting, uh, I think, has improved to this point because having lost Sid Barrett to uh, a few albums earlier, he was the key songwriter of the early era. And so I think it, Roger Waters especially, I think, becomes sort of the main songwriter by this point. And I think he's done a good job here with his lyrics. I think they're... It's, it's sort of the hallmark of what Pink Floyd does lyrically, I think, by this point, where they're... Uh, specific in their generalities if that makes sense i think yeah he does, he does very evocative turns of phrases that i think are very relatable while also not being overly simplistic or overwrought i think and i agree echoes i think is a good example of that plus i think it sounds great i think like you know you yeah it takes a while to get going but i think in general all the instrumentation on here sounds so good and just like there's a lot of there's more well-defined sections of the song, I think, than, like, on Adam Hart Mother. And they all rock just a little bit harder, too, I think. But yeah, which, which I agree else? with that. Uh, you know, uh, what do you think of Saint-Tropez? I think that's a kind of a divisive song in their catalog, I, too.
1: That was one that I I was going to mention in the context of Seamus as another song that I just really straight-up did not like. Um <laughs>
0: I kind of it's like not, that one, It's actually. not
1: as annoying as Seamus is, but it's definitely not great.
0: Uh, yeah, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's a bit of a tossed-off sort of sounding song, but I think at the same time, I don't know, it's it's kind of a just light and breezy song. I don't think it hurts the album, and, you know, I think the piano, Rick Wright's piano sounds great in it. I think, uh, you know, I, I'll give him one easy, breezy song for what's a kind of a heavy catalog of... Uh, <laughs> not really easy breezy songs from from here on out or before right not so after this barbette schroeder calls him up again to put a soundtrack together for his next film la valie which uh they actually already began a tour by this point and had already started planning what their next album would be but they enjoyed working on more so they gave him a yes stopped over a couple times uh during the middle of their tour over in france Recorded their album soundtrack Which would be called Obscured by Clouds And released in June of 72 I'll play a little bit of the U.S. single from it Free 4 And we'll discuss that album
3: The memories of a man in his old age The deeds of a
0: man in his prime
3: You shuffle in the gloom of the sick room And talk to yourself as you die Life is a short, warm moment twinkling of an eye 80 years with luck or even less So all aboard for the American tour And maybe you'll make it to the top But mind how you go And I can tell you cause I know You may find it hard to get off
0: I mean, I always kind of forget that this is after metal and not before, because I think metal is such like a like, you know, Dark Side of the Moon dry run, practically, that then this feels like they're a step back kind of.
1: Oh, big time. Yeah. Although they're not really I don't think they're they're aiming for Dark Side of the Moon here. Right. Like this is a soundtrack to an album. So Mm -hmm. I think they can be forgiven for stepping back. Having said that, yeah, this is a step
0: back. Yeah, yeah, they've already written at least half if not all of Dark Side of the Moon by this point. This is obviously meant to be a different project. Uh but I still think it's a, it's kind of fun honestly. I don't I don't dislike this uh as even a record. I also have not seen Lava Lee, which I think is even harder to find than more. Uh and was, this album is even called Obscured by Clouds because they got into some kind of beef with the film production company. Uh, and we're like, you know, we like the music, but we're going to release it under a different title just to, to even make it not even associated with the movie. But then, <laughs> when they did release the movie after the album came out, they just gave Lavalie the subtitle "Obscured by Clouds," so that <laughs> it still was tied in. But you know, I think the instrumentals are cool. The all the songs with lyrics are fine. It, it's it's just, the problem is it's it's you know what's coming, right? You know what's going to be after this, and exactly yeah, it's exciting.
1: But. Free Four is not a bad song. um mm-hmm what's the deal is not a bad song. I the like the gold it's yeah. in the is not a bad
0: song mm-hmm. and I'm done. <laughs> I think some, you know, some of the instrumentals are are cool and I, I have yeah. like a playlist of instrumentals that I'll throw on when we're like playing board games and stuff. And some of those, <laughs> they, they do well as background music, like it's supposed to be, but
1: <laughs> this is not your like end of the night, okay, you have to leave soundtrack.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not the last call. <laughs> I've got some but... 30
1: minute Pink Floyd that I'm gonna play for you right now,
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, this is it was funny. The first time I got this actually was a, an early like itunes purchase actually when i got like an itunes gift card with my first ipod i was like oh you know i don't have obscured by clouds let me just pick that up and then i was like okay (laughs) that's the reason why it might be harder to find at this point in my life than uh, some of the other ones but
1: jeff we sold it
0: (laughs) yeah i do actually now have so in 2011 they re-released and remastered the whole catalog and so i picked up the cd of that one too so i have it physically now but uh you know, like we said, it's it's a perfectly fine soundtrack album, but it is neither as good as what just came out, and it's obviously not as good as what's about to come out.
1: So. Right. Ooh, before we move on to what's about to come out, I've got your answer. Ooh. Uh uh Pink Floyd's Adam Hart Mother hit number one on the British charts. It hit number fifty five on the American charts, so that's why we never saw it in the top ten. But it hit number mm-hmm. one on the British charts. On October 24th of 1970, uh, replacing, you want to take a stab at the band?
0: Ooh, is it is it one that we mentioned in the American charts uh, just then? I don't that? think so, no. Oh, wow. So it's probably, oh boy, I don't even know. What... Is, it, is it an artist I know?
1: Oh, yeah, big time. Hmm. It's not one that we've covered.
0: Uh, is it? Is it Let It Be? uh nope not let it
1: be Ooh, i don't even know where let it be is here um oh there's let it be yeah let it be was number one for a few weeks earlier in the year but yeah not let it be uh paranoid black sabbath
0: oh good one
1: yeah it's a little bit the the page that i'm looking at is a little bit odd because paranoid was number one on october 10th of 1970 and then they don't have any details at all for the seventeenth, so I don't know mm. what the deal was that week, but on the twenty fourth of October, Adam Hartmother takes over as number one, uh, and then gets replaced the following week by Motown Chartbusters Volume Four. So <laughs> Ooh. if you're if you're upset at now that's what I call music and just how ubiquitous that's been for the <laughs> last twenty five years, right. take heart. That has been a thing since the very beginning apparently.
0: Is there is uh, there any Stevie on that Motown collection? Can you see a track list?
1: Uh I can pull that up for you. Uh yeah, by the cool. way, uh Motown Chartbusters Volume 4 is immediately replaced the following week by Led Zeppelin 3, so okay, yeah. eventually <laughs> things come back around. So, right. uh Motown Chartbusters Volume 4 features Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday by Stevie Wonder. Okay. Uh Never Had a Dream Come True by Stevie Wonder. Mhm. Um and delivered nope oh wow. But, well i mean that's i'm sure that's volume three <laughs> maybe <laughs> oh wait i'm i'm on the whole Chartbusters page hang on a second <laughs> uh no volume three is for once in my life by stevie wonder okay signed sealed delivered i'm yours was volume five we had to wait a little extra oh. time
0: <laughs> well i knew it had to be on one of them right
1: it's it's yeah it's of course of course it is <laughs> Volume 4 has the classic I Want You Back. Mm. I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch. Someday We'll Be Together. ABC, the other classic Jackson 5 song, something called The Onion Song by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, which I don't know, and I don't know if I want to know, <laughs> but like all of these together are, are, are certainly better than Adam Hart Mother, right?
0: Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I think of of the, like, I mean, between Paranoid, and Led Zeppelin three and this Motown compilation, I would honestly put Adam Hart Mother fourth among those.
1: Nice little palate cleanser there in the middle.
0: Yeah. Uh, but back to Pink Floyd in September of <laughs> seventy two, a uh, concert film of sorts is released with live in Pompeii, half of which it was recorded in October seventy one at actual Pompeii, uh, with the other half recorded on a sound stage p- in Paris in December. Uh, The first release was just over an hour long. The film's director, Adrian Maben wanted to flesh it out a little more for another release. So he he, uh, uh, talked with Roger about filming with a band in Abbey Road Studios while they worked on their next record, along with some interviews. And So that version of the film was released in December of 73. Uh, But just before that, in March, the eighth studio album from Pink Floyd would release Dark Side of the Moon. Play a little bit of Breathe, and then we will discuss the record. Yeah, as I mentioned, this was a cassette that I had when I first started driving. It uh, sparked my love for the band. I mean, I've listened to this album probably hundreds of times in the last 20-some years.
1: What drew you to the album in the first place?
0: I think... I don't think I'd really ever... I mean, that's why I started with Breathe, too, because I think you hear that the rising sound collages speak to me into Breathe. I don't think I've heard anything that sounds like that before in my life. And I don't know that anybody's come close to replicating the same sort of... I don't know. It's a very evocative, very sound collage of an album in general. I think that they their songwriting, like it's kind of t- tip to before, has the very spe- you know big ideas in generalities type songwriting that you can immediately relate to. And I think all the musicians on this sound incredible. David Gilmour's guitar sounds insane. Uh, Rick Wright's keyboards, sound great the bass parts uh, everybody is firing on all cylinders on this album and I think nobody certainly I mean when you listen like I started driving what in 2004 2003 uh, there was nobody making music that sounded like this at that moment they were making some of the worst rock in history probably if we're being honest <laughs> but so that was kind of a, a nice contrast to see like this album came out 30 years before I started driving, and nobody's even come close to making something as cool, I don't think, as this.
1: Well, I was uh, already mentioned Revolution 9, and that's like an early experiment in sound collage, right? Which Mm -hmm. is kind of notorious for not being all that great. Like, all right, it's interesting. You're doing cool stuff. I see where you're going with it. You're experimenting. I like that. You're the Beatles. You get to do that. But it's not great. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. a... super fun, like, re-listenable experience. Like, I'm going to go back and listen to that and play it at parties. Whereas Pink Floyd figures it out, right? Like, Pink Floyd figures out how to do sound collage in a way that's not just cool and experimental, but also, like, makes sense as music and as art, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, honestly, like, if you want another example of that you've got to go to hip-hop right like the Mm -hmm. the closest thing to this is going to be is going to be in that genre not really in rock
0: yeah which i think especially you know probably in the early 2000s in high school i mean that's sort of and throughout the 90s really that's i mean hip-hop was one of the dominant genres of the 90s i think on the on pop radio period right and then
1: for like sound collage that's what you'd have Mm -hmm. to listen to Yeah, yeah
0: especially when they start when it's composed of samples and stuff i mean we talked about it sort of at the beginning of season one right but the as samples became more ubiquitous creating these collages of sound that take these clips of old records and make them into something completely new and completely different that is actually some of the most exciting stuff you can hear around that time too so to go back and hear all of this you know this this album here which is sort of you know we it doesn't have the big long song because the whole album kind of is the big long song exactly but each one also is very distinct and has its own hooks and ideas while filtering in these reprises of certain themes throughout uh i don't know i think it's you know i've listened to it so many times i think it's about as perfect as an album can be so i don't know how objective i can be but that's also not what this show's <laughs> about it, so
1: what's your favorite song off of this
0: I think my favorite on this is Time, okay. which uh, I think works to, A, because it has that little reprise at the end of Breathe, so it's tying itself back into the album at the start. It has David Gilmour's guitar is still some of my, he's one of my favorite guitar players, period. I think the way he has this like just outer space blues sound, I think it's perfect and, it, and it's never sounded better than it does on Time, I don't think. Like, the guitar solo especially just soars over the everything behind it, while also being just, it's a song that that makes me turn up the, the dial every time I have it play, you know? Yeah, it's really good. What about you? What was your favorite off of this one?
1: Oh, uh, Eclipse, for sure. And I'll I'll lump them I'll lump Brand Damage and Eclipse together because although they are separate tracks I think they do work together as one piece and I think of them together as one piece partly because that's how they get played on the radio but I think correctly they get played on the radio
0: that way. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, I think this I think that's builds to a climax at the end.
0: Yeah, the the album in general is such an incredible build and those yeah those two songs at the end are the perfect way to end it.
1: And it's the the perfect way to end it and also like a perfect encapsulation of the point of Dark Side of the Moon, which let's talk about the fact that the album has a point. Like there's a Mm -hmm. theme to the album and a message that we're trying to send here about uh, about the extent to which like we're all connected and yeah. I think well, uh, who was it uh, had to have been waters. It might've been Gilmore uh, talked about how eclipse kind of captures that, that sense of everything that we could possibly want is laid out in front of us and there for the taking. If we're just willing to like, reach out and take it but there's just something in humanity that turns to the dark side that turns to irrationality that turns to insanity they've seen this with sid barrett they're Mm -hmm. seeing it a little bit with themselves and that that is that is part of humanity too and therefore the two songs kind of function together and you end up with this like climactic build about all this wonderful stuff that's out there in the world but the last line is all of this is eclipsed by the moon um mm-hmm. it's brilliant
0: yeah and there's the line in time that kind of goes with that too where like uh you know you run and you run to catch up with the sun but it's sinking racing around to yep. come behind you again uh the sun is the same in a relative way but you're older short of breath one day closer to death like you're just a blip on the radar of the sun that's going to live for billions of years beyond you and yeah like it's They do such a great job of, you know, we've talked about it with Springsteen, too, just finding quick little ways to make a point that sticks with you immediately. Uh, and I think each song has a moment like that on it. Yeah.
1: And points that will stick with them immediately, too, because that line in time about cyclicality is going to come back in the wall, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole, that whole album is a cycle.
0: Yeah. And there's even a line, you know, like I mentioned with Echoes being uh you know the dark side uh rough draft he has a line about uh you know uh by uh, two people passing on the street by chance our glances meet uh, and they see each other in themselves you know for that moment that's that's another theme of this too just seeing yourself in others being all part of uh, a human experience that often gets drowned out by other things
1: Man, it's a good thing there were a couple of other good songwriters in this band besides Sid Barrett, right?
0: Yeah, I know. Tur- yeah, it turns out they all were able to kind of put something together that was <laughs> pretty good still. <laughs> uh, and of course, you have, you know, we talk about lyrics, but uh, Great Gig in the Sky, Claire Torrey, a uh, Sessions uh, musician, comes in and does the vocals on that uh, instrumental piece that Rick Wright has composed. And I think that's still one of the best vocal performances of all time, too.
1: Oh, big time, yeah
0: and that was one that's got kind
1: of, of a gimme shelter vibe to it right like yeah uh, absolutely yeah
0: mary clayton i think does that yep, one yep uh yeah i mean and really just going in and giving her a couple shots at like here's what we're thinking these are the emotions that we're working with on this album these are the themes and just what does that sound like and then she goes in there and just goes absolutely nuts on there in in the best way and she th- she walks out of there thinking that there's in the in the, i think it's a classic classic album documentary about the album they're interviewing people and she walks out going like i blew it <laughs> there's no way that i got that. and they're like no you absolutely nailed it that's exactly what we wanted well
1: she yeah. walked out of there thinking i blew it because they didn't react like they were like yeah. okay thank you very much <laughs> good night
0: right uh yeah and they're all i'm sure they're all just sitting there stunned like man i'm glad we didn't <laughs> give her any more instruction because like <laughs> that's what, i couldn't have told her to do it any better than that i don't think
1: what do you get from that lyric or that that vocal performance in the Great gig in the sky because I've heard it've I've read a little bit about that song and I've heard it described as a combination of like sexual ecstasy and also just the the primordial terror of facing one's own death and i gotta say like i've heard this song several times i don't get the primordial terror of facing one's own death i get like nothing but joy and ecstasy from that lyric from that vocal but i don't i don't know what you think
0: i think it probably is a little bit of both because i think too like you can see on some of their uh like studio uh papers and stuff like that the working title i think was heaven for that song too so i think there's definitely the intention of Something of you know the soul and the afterlife. I think there's so there's a point to be made for both, right? Because there's uh, right. Don't they call a isn't little death the, the other word for an orgasm, right? So there's true. I yeah. think there's playing with that for sure. Is is another thing that they're experimenting there. So I think I think you do get a little bit of both from that performance. I think you get something. It is soulful in a way that I think they intended it to be. And us and them too was actually the. A skeleton of that song was actually one that they had made for the uh for Zabriskie Point, the Antonio Antonioni movie that he ended up not using. Uh, I think there was a point in the movie that was like this uh, some like violent eruption, and he's like, I want you know a, a violent song to go with this, and they give him us and them. And he's like, That's that's not what I wanted at all. <laughs> <are you> <laughs> when it's actually, I think, would be it is the perfect, I think, song for something like that, but in a much different way than he probably wanted,
1: Right, right? So they didn't yeah. make it to go with the the three Munchkins coming out. <laughs> no,
0: wasn't wasn't made. You'll never uh, convince to line up. me otherwise. <laughs> they did. I have watched that with uh, Wizard of Oz as, as well, and the band fully admits that it's completely coincidental. There was no oh yeah intention no, totally. to line up with that, but it does. This it is, is fun what I. Th- to this do. is
1: what I used to do in high school. Like just in general, I would put the radio on and then I'd turn MTV on and put it on mute and watch the videos with the songs that don't go with it. And it's super fun. Like you get a lot of like really interesting Mm -hmm. things. What was the song that I was listening to? I was listening to Pink Floyd in one tab while I was on YouTube watching roller coaster videos on another tab and it (laughs) synced up perfectly. I couldn't tell you what the song was. We'll say it was comfortably numb. I don't know. It was one yeah. of those.
0: <laughs> I f- you could probably pick half dozen songs that would probably work well for a roller coaster. Oh, it I
1: worked great. Yeah, Eclipse would be good for a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, I was
0: gonna say, except for maybe <laughs> Eclipse. It depends how long the roller coaster ride is, but
1: yeah. Well, again, like if you're gonna put us and them behind like a volcanic explosion, like put Eclipse next to a roller coaster, you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna do well.
0: Yeah. Uh, but as we mentioned in the bestsellers episode, this became the sixth best-selling album of all time, currently over 44 million sold, 724 consecutive weeks on the Billboard charts. That's from 1973 to 1988, 961 and counting non-consecutive weeks. So, I mean, this is obviously one that a lot of people are going to relate to. And I think uh, that it's it did, I mean, it had to surprise the band. They say it did, but I mean, you can't really understate the surprise of having an album like that, that kind of success.
1: Oh, but, now now I got to bring the billboard page back up to find out which crap album from 1988
0: replaced <laughs> I wonder. I bet it was like. Well, it would have see that it would have to be. You'd have to look at a hundred albums because that's what bumped it off of the charts. Period. So, yeah, what was number one hundred in 1988 when exactly, it fell right. off? Yeah. But uh, it also made me realize that because the original title for the album was Eclipse assorted songs for lunatics uh and of course that's sort of the theme that comes up throughout or, but uh, it made me realize the uh, the root of the word lunatic right it's re- relating specifically to a full moon oh it's to the moon crazy. yeah yeah which is another just like <laughs> of course i never realized that before but it's perfect uh but so now obviously they've fully arrived i mean this album is a major hit they tore the u.s tore the uk and europe again and wouldn't you know success isn't just as uh, simple as they make it out to be right so In fact, they start trying a few times to figure out how to possibly follow up this album. Uh, It was incredibly stressful for them, uh, and they had no idea how they could ever do it. So they took their time, worked out some ideas on the road that they would refine into their next album, which, of course, a little bit about success and failure in Equal, but also very pointedly about their old friend, Sid Barrett. Roger and Gilmore had begun writing material inspired by their old friend, and in the beginning of 75, start recording uh, some over at Abbey Road again. Uh, sessions and mixing are stretching out for months as they worked on all their ideas. And in the June of 75, one day, there's an unannounced visitor in the studio. Someone at first, uh, they presumed, worked for the studio, maybe EMI. But in fact, it was Sid himself. He gained a good amount of weight, shaved his head and eyebrows. Uh, but it was him. They barely recognized him, but uh, he managed to show up in the studio where his old band is recording an album about him just coincidentally uh, it was an incredibly emotional experience for the band they hadn't seen him in years and i I think most of them wouldn't see him again after this Uh, but the album is wish you were here released in september of 75 i'll play a little of the title track and then we'll discuss that album song this is a beautiful song i think yeah uh it's you know this this album in general it's obviously tipped off or you know topped off by one of the eeriest stories in rock history probably but i think this song is just so simple and effective uh and it's uh, one of my favorites in their whole catalog probably
1: So the first time I ever heard this song was in high school, and it was completely disconnected from any Pink Floyd-related context whatsoever. It was, I was doing uh, high school forensics. We were doing, this was senior year, we were doing um, like multiple oral interpretation where you take like a text or a play or something and you make a 10 to 15 minute piece out of it. And Mm -hmm. we were in competition. And one of the other uh schools that we were competing against all spring was doing this piece called a piece of my heart which is about vietnam war nurses uh Mm. it's it's based on a book which is a really good book which everyone should check out um but they opened with so you think you can tell heaven from hell blue skies from pain uh or blue skies from rain um and like, I'd never heard that before. And in the context of like Vietnam War nurses, it mm-hmm. was significant enough. And then to play it in this context, like in this larger, in this, la- in the context of this larger piece about mental health and insanity and genius and their friend Sid, like it just takes on that extra layer of meaning on top of
0: that. Mm hmm and you have uh, the two-part shine on your crazy diamond uh, on either end of the record, which I think is a cool idea, too. I think they serve as good bookends for the uh, album, and I think it's an interesting idea to take, instead of having the big long one, take it, split it in half, put it on either side. And I think it works pretty well.
1: Yeah, which they'll then do again later in uh, in the wall. I love this album. I think, like, there are there are duds, I think, in dark side of the moon and there are duds in the wall but this album maybe by virtue of the fact that there's only five songs and really only four songs considering shine on is is two of them Mm -hmm. there is no there is no song on this album that isn't great like this it's not even that there are no duds on this album every single track on this album is great from start to finish and this is not my favorite album of all time but there are very very few albums out there that you can say that about
0: and this is one of them i think i think for me welcome to machine is good not great but even that, I think that's the only part of it for me that doesn't work as well as the rest. I think Yeah. It, it's a it's a pretty solid start to finish album aside from that. I think Wish You're Here is obviously great. The two Shine On Your Crazy Diamond's great. Uh Have a Cigar is a fun one. I think I think maybe Welcome to the Machine just got I don't know, it was a little too mechanically sound collage in a way that didn't fully work for me as much as some of the stuff Mini did bini. on Dark Side right before. But even then, I mean, that's nitpicking because I think I would listen to this start to finish any time. Oh, yeah.
1: I, I could totally see that. Um, yeah, between between Welcome to the Machine and Have a Cigar, I'd have to listen to them a bunch of times to, to tell you which of the two I like the least, but I think they're both great.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, you have uh, English folk rock singer Roy Harper doing the vocals on Cigar after neither Waters or Gilmore felt that they were getting it right. And I think, I don't remember if he was just at the studio at the same time and they happened to talk him into it or if they called him up. But either way, I think he does a great job. And I didn't even realize, honestly, for many years that it was not one of the two of them doing it.
1: Yeah, he f- he fits right in with the band, right? Like, he sounds like Pink Floyd.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think its a, it's a good choice, too. It's a very impressive vocal performance. Yeah, it's great. And another great Storm Thorgerson cover uh, with the man shaking the hand of a man on fire right on the front, which is uh, another iconic cover.
1: Yeah. See, that's
0: an iconic cover, and we didn't talk
1: about the, the Dark Side of the Moon cover, which, of course, is one of the most right. iconic <laughs> covers of all time. Those two I can get behind. The picture of a cow, I don't think <laughs> it's nearly... <laughs> uh as much shit for that cover as he should because it's it's the picture of a cow
0: in in the in the mason book he talks about uh one time like you know storm would come into the studio and kind of bounce ideas off the guys and when they're doing dark side of the moon uh rick wright goes up to him and he's like all right look i want you to just make something simple and bold for this one not any cows not any blurry shit on the front just make something (laughs) simple and bold that's all i want and so then he brings in the the Prism, and they're like, okay, that, that's exactly what we wanted. <laughs> that's it. That's that's what we want. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think uh, Wish You Were Here is, I think, a, a great follow up. I think you, it's something almost you had to. You, it, I'm sure there was a, the pressure was incredible to follow up Dark Side of the Moon. I think it, this is a, a successful follow up in a way that also resets them a little bit. I think you can. It's it's a way for them to. They probably have a little more relaxed well they're not really more relaxed they're getting more tense by the minute (laughs) it seems like but i think it musically it allows them to say okay we're still the same band we were before dark side of the moon we still have ideas that are worth exploring after this and i think it's a very successful follow-up to what probably felt like an unfollowable album
1: right all right i've got the answer to your question Dark Side of the Moon falls off of the Billboard Top 200 on July 23rd, 1988. Mm hmm. Uh, several albums enter the Top 200 in that week, so you could blame any of these. <laughs> okay. Uh, Forever Your Girl by Paula Abdul. Good, okay, good sure. album. Uh, Party Your Body by Stevie B. Uh, The Mac Band featuring the McCampbell Brothers. That's a self-titled album. Uh, (laughs) Go Bang by some band called Shriek Back. Uh, Supersonic, the album by J.J. Fad. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm passing over a couple here. Uh, Iggy Pop's got one called Instinct. Uh, Ooh, a band called Loose Ends enters the charts with something called The Real Chucky Boo. (laughs)
0: <laughs> real Chucky Boo
1: the real Chucky Boo uh, up up near the top uh, entering the charts uh, for the first time at number 79 is an album that we've talked about it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by one public enemy great album uh but if you're if you're at all concerned about pink floyd being sad that they uh dropped out of the top 200 never fear because at that point a momentary lapse of reason was at number 120 so (laughs) that's
0: true it had been out for a year by that point so that
1: (laughs) particular week more people bought a momentary lapse of reason than uh dark side of the moon which a is a momentary lapse of reason and b proves the dark side of the moon
0: yeah (laughs) You know, at that point, it had been fifteen years since Darkside had been out. So, I mean, after uh, at a certain point, more people had to be born to buy the album. Like, <laughs> like come the, on, every, Britain, pop out those yeah, kids! What are you every, doing? Every household had one at that point, so <laughs> there's only so many copies you can buy. Maybe, you know, maybe the, I guess the you know CDs had to become more popular so they could buy it in a second oh, format. So they come back, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so <laughs> I think it was just a matter of saturation at, at a certain point. Uh, but after uh, Wish You Were Here, they, you know, go, of, of course, another massive tour. Stress still building. Uh, they have money and wherewithal to build their own studio now in Britannia Row in London. Built the studio uh, with the studio on the bottom, offices on top, and even set in like a rubber insulation around the entire foundation to prevent noise from traffic leaking into the studio. Uh, they This is where they would record their 10th studio album, the George Orwell-inspired Animals, released in January of 77. I'll play the beginning of Dogs, and then we will discuss that album. What did, what was your take on animals? This was your first time hearing it. Eh,
2: yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> eh.
1: Like honestly, I started listening to dogs, and I was like, yeah, this is this is well made, but it's going on way too long, and I did not say that about Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I didn't say it about Echoes. I didn't say it about Adam Hart Mother. But I was looking at my watch listening to dogs. <laughs> and then I was looking at my watch listening to pigs. And I was looking at my watch listening to sheep. And then the album was over. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, I, I like dogs a lot. This is my favorite one on the record. I think uh, there's a lot of cool ideas I think they have here. And I think they go for something a little different on this one, which I appreciate, too. They're, it's a little more... Uh, it's still very much dealing with you know society's ills as they have been this time through that kind of animal farm lens obviously uh, and I kind of like as an album that it kind of does the reverse of Wish You Were Here where you've got two short songs uh, on either side followed with the three ones in the middle uh, and I also for Dogs in particular, A, I think another good guitar solo and B, I think it's cool how uh, Gilmore takes the vocals up front and Waters takes the vocals at the end I think that's kind yes. of a cool
1: flip for that I did think that was kind of cool. The one thing that I, I read about animals is that this was Pink Floyd's attempt to respond to like, the punk rock movement, which is rising at this time and rising at this time kind of in opposition to classic rock, prog rock, arena rock, like what Pink Floyd represented and saying that's getting old and stale and stay it. And we're saying <laughs> something political. We're the new thing. And Pink Floyd was like, yeah, well, we can be political, too. We can be the new thing. And... I think if this is an attempt to show punk rock that they can be just as politically relevant as they are, it's kind of a failure. Because if you think about 1977 and political music, you're probably not thinking about animals. You are thinking about Sex Pistols, right? Mm-hmm. Like they just they just do politics better. Yeah. Uh, what Pink Floyd does better is philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um And I don't, I don't get philosophy from this. I don't get literature from this. Like if you're Pink Floyd, that's, that's the road you go down. Uh, Leave the political statements to the kids who don't know any better.
0: (laughs) Right. I think, uh, I think Mason touched on that a little bit too in the book about how, but he, he does say that it's not, it was not intended to be a specific rebuke to punk rock. I think a lot of, more rock critics maybe framed it that way than the band themselves did because some of these ideas too Roger had had around the Wish You Were Here times as well it was kind of like which album are we going to do first and they ended up kind of doing that one first so I think these were ideas he had had for a while I think they still explore similar themes if maybe in a less uh, maybe in in a less good way maybe th- lyrically but uh, I I still found it pretty fun and I don't think that it exists in opposition to punk for me in the way that maybe some people wanted it to uh, yeah. but it, I do think it probably it does feel like a little heavier a little more rock centric album than uh, than some of the past ones but uh, I don't know something about it really clicks for me and it's another one that I would drive around listening to a lot too which which works out well but
1: That's fair. The one the one thing that I did notice from this album is that like to the extent that Pink Floyd is at this point moving in a musical direction, Mm -hmm. they're moving into not punk, but metal. Right. Like they're getting closer and closer to the like what's going to be 80s metal. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a proto version of that, right? And you're gonna see that even more when we get to the wall where they just fully embrace it a hundred percent, especially at the end, just like go full on into it. This this I think is a lead up to that.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, we mentioned him, like when during the uh Adam Hart Mother chart discussion, I mean Black Sabbath had already made heavy metal albums seven years prior that i think led zeppelin had already made heavier albums before this so i think you're right in the context of greater pop music this can sort of easily be shot down by there's been better stuff for years already and maybe if you're looking for something heavier you can find it easily elsewhere but i think in pink floyd's catalog specifically which probably i was digging deep into at the time and again were for this episode i think it stands out in a way that's maybe more interesting than in the larger pop music context.
1: If you also, if you're going to do, uh, if you're going to make a political statement that you got to have something a little bit more than just shouting out someone's name and going, ha ha you are <laughs> right. and just moving on from that. Like, okay, great. But yeah. like, why are they a charade? Like, give me, give me context. Give me evidence.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know
1: a... who Mary Whitehouse is because I'm not British. So I'm going to have to look this up on <laughs> Wikipedia. Cause you're not telling me yeah. Roger.
0: Yeah, exactly. As an American listener, you take a little bit of a different, like, uh, <laughs> lesson, or you know, you you think of something different when you hear White House, right? Exactly.
1: But, but now, now I know who Mary Whitehouse is. She was the Anita Bryant of of Great Britain, which is uh, fine. Um, <laughs> I guess we all have to have one, but uh, but I know this now, not because of Pink Floyd, because they didn't bother to tell me who she was, but because of Wikipedia, uh, mm-hmm. I know who Mary Whitehouse is.
0: But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is—they've done. You know, it's not their best album, though. I think it's probably going to rank higher for me than it will for you. Sounds like, but uh, I think it's still a very entertaining listening for me. If you like their uh, their long songs, you'll you'll find a lot to like here, and even the short songs. I think the the two pigs on the wing uh bookends I think are still good and I think I like, oh, yeah, the way, I like those. Yeah. I like the way that even his you know, we've ragged on his lyrics a little bit on this one, but I like the way his lyrics change from one to the next two, I think on this one are good.
1: Yeah. Pigs on the Wing is my favorite song off of this album, and that's I'll I'll leave that as my statement about this <laughs> album.
0: Oh, well, they do of course, uh the cover is of the Battersea Power Station in South West London. Uh the pig, the iconic pig over the smokestacks was a 40-foot-long balloon made by an Australian artist named Geoffrey Shaw. Uh, The pig's nickname was Algae, if you were curious. Uh, And they even had a marksman on the roof of the power station ready to shoot it down if it got away, uh, (laughs) which it did on the second day of the photo shoots for the album uh, before the marksman was able to get into position, so he was not able to shoot it down. And it uh, came down safely, uh, ironically enough, on a farm outside the city uh with after they uh alerted all nearby air traffic that this <laughs> pig was loose in the sky but i do think it's a great cover uh if if maybe uh maybe that's its legacy more than anything but
1: it's also very emblematic pink floyd, pink floyd thinks they can control the pigs but not <laughs> exactly. really no not he, not with this
0: nobody can uh but that would uh that would The tour for this one would uh, prove inspirational, though perhaps not in the way they would have hoped it might be. Uh, During during a show in Montreal, a rowdy fan in the front right up against the stage had gotten on Roger's nerves enough that he lost composure and spat on him and was deeply troubled by how he reacted to that, but uh, created a gem of an idea that uh, would be the impetus for their next album. Uh, It was also a time when David Gilmore recorded a solo album of his own, self-titled one released in '78. Rick Wright would release a solo album that same year, Wet Dream. Uh, even Mason spent uh, some time producing a record for the Canterbury prog rocker Steve Hilgren, uh his 78 album Green. Uh, so everybody's kind of branching out. They're, they're starting to get on each other's nerves a little bit, starting to find ways to get away. Uh, but this is when Roger would uh, get away himself and write, uh, and write and write and write, working through all the issues that he had, all the way from a child up through Montreal, basically. The stress of the road, isolation, uh, the loss of his father uh digging into of course the, the sid uh, relationship again everything all kind of combines into their 1979 double album the rock opera final album of our show today i'll play a little bit of the walls opening track in the flesh and then we'll discuss the album So in the flesh was actually the title of their tour for animals which uh I didn't realize until uh, we looked this stuff up but uh I think this I got to ask of course this is a double album what do you think does it need to be a double album
1: There are individual tracks on this album that I don't love this needs to be a double album Yeah for sure this is I mean you you can't you can't take any of these tracks out and have it be the same album, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is telling a story.
0: Yeah. I mean, we... they are quite literally bricks in the wall, right? You can't take some exactly, out and <laughs> right. then it doesn't stand. So,
1: so insofar as, and I'm only just thinking about this now, um, insofar as this whole fricking thing was inspired by, at least largely inspired by that concert in Montreal where Roger Waters spits in the fans face. Do we know who the fan was? Like, did have they have they been interviewed? Like, what are what are what's their take on this? Cause...
0: yeah, I think Mason mentions that in the book too. He says that there was at some point like an, an attempt to reach out, uh, but they couldn't find him, and he has not. Even though the story is as big as it is, he has not reached out trying to get any royalties from this album. So
1: he's like the Steve Bartman of of <laughs> rock and roll fans. Like, he has this bad moment, but it inspires such like. Powerful imagery, and it just becomes part of this this lore and this narrative about the history of rock music. Like, who is this guy? Let's find him.
0: I know. Do you, Do you think like after that show, maybe he just hated the band so much he stopped paying any and all attention to Pink Floyd? Oh, <laughs> and so maybe. Maybe he doesn't even know that he inspired the the, the album.
1: May- well, no, because like honestly, if you're such a huge Pink Floyd fan that you're in the first row. Of a huge concert show at like the peak of their popularity, uh, and and Roger Waters spits in your face. You're, you you got to be bragging about that to your friends, yeah. right? Like, uh, yeah. oh my God, Roger Waters spit in my face. That's good with be like true. a Quebecois accent, so whatever <laughs> that sounds
0: like. Yeah, exactly. I know. So, yeah, they have to know, but I don't know. Yeah. they have not come forward as far as I know. I don't think. But oh
1: that's the great mystery like forget what happened to elvis like who's the fan in montreal that's what i want to know yeah
0: if they ever do come forward i mean that it's worthy of another update to nick mason's book i'm sure he has to get in there and talk to him
1: so very few albums have i had this experience with where i sat down and started listening and again like i'd not listened to this album at all before uh, sitting down and listening to it for this podcast. I mm-hmm. heard the singles. I'd heard the famous songs like Another Brick in the Wall, Mother, Comfortably Numb, couple of others, but that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so sitting down and listening to this, I hadn't seen the movie, didn't really know what the plot of the movie was. I'd, I went into this completely cold, and by the end of it, I was sitting in here with the lights off like headphones on listening to it from start to finish and just captivated by it this is a Mm -hmm. great album
0: yeah and i think you know as far as rock operas you know double album story you know stories spread across these songs i think this is one of the best if not the best at telling the story start to finish well for sure while still also having great music throughout too yes
1: because you know? like tommy tells a great story but like some of the songs are really only work in the service of the story like these songs are just they stand alone
0: yeah and we and did you did you have a chance to listen to lamb lies down on broadway the genesis one
1: i did yeah
0: yeah i think that one has i mean i mentioned it to my dad too but i mean the story in that is completely bonkers and makes basically no sense <laughs> But the musicianship is top-notch. So, I mean, it's a very listenable album that, as a story, may not track. But this one, I think, has the story that is really well-threaded throughout the album.
1: Yeah, the musicianship on Genesis is really, really good. The story is not as compelling. The songs are not as compelling. Here, the musicianship is great. And the story is compelling. And the songs are compelling. And it makes a point and a complex point in a way that Animals just tries and fails to do. Like, this, this album says something um which animals definitely doesn't do wish you were here does but only in like a very personal way Mm -hmm. and dark side of the moon does but i think this album does it better like dark side of the moon is is making a point but not to the same degree and not with the same success i don't think as the wall um Mm -hmm. I think uh the only the only gripe that I'll have about the wall is that uh act 3 runs off the rails. Um after like once you flip over the 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 second si- uh the second uh the second album after comfortably numb and he goes into his like fascist dictator fantasy. I'm I'm a little bit less enamored with that that mm-hmm. sequence of songs, but man, everything leading up to it.
0: Yeah. I think two, yeah. I think side, you know, so disc one, sides one and two, you've got it's building the wall, right? And so then it's up at the start of side two, and if hey, you is there anybody out there? Built, you're building up to comfortably numb at the end of side three, and then you're, it's all kind of, it's all building to the climax of the wall crumbling down by the end of the of the whole album. Yeah, uh, I think that for me. It is a little bit, and I, but it also has to be this way, right? Like we've said, you can't really take anything out of this. Uh, there's a little bit, maybe too long of a build up to comfortably numb for me. I think it's a great build up, but if I was gonna nitpick anywhere, that's the only thing I was really thinking is that comfortably numb so good that you're waiting for it the entire side <laughs> to get to it. I don't know.
1: Maybe uh, comfortably numb is really good. I'm happy to get the build up to it because I'm, I'm like, and and comfortably numb. Like is a long song that is itself a build up to a great climax, so mm-hmm. um, so I'm okay with like Vera and bring the boys back home coming right yeah. before it and taking up a couple of minutes before you get to comfort mom. I think side three of this album is my favorite of the four, yeah, uh I think it's the most complete, I think it's the most coherent I think it tells the most interesting portion of the story, and in terms of not sound collage but song medley Mm -hmm. um i'm still gonna say side b of abbey road is is the best at that this is as close as i've ever heard to that level of success um and you could make an you could make an argument that might convince me that side three of the wall is better than side B of Abbey Road. I'm not going to agree with you, (laughs) but I will sit
0: there and listen patiently. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fantastic side that I would put up, you know, even up against most of these records we heard today. But, uh, I think too, in defensive side four, a little bit, I think that I like kind of the chaos of what's going on in the story and like how the music reflects that, uh, all leading down to the wall crumbling down and the absurd trial that doesn't sound anything like really the rest of the album, but right. still works for some reason. I think.
1: Yeah, the trial was okay. The it's trial, okay. Is, the trial, I think, could have been a couple minutes shorter.
0: You could probably trim a minute off the trial, but but even then, right, it still doesn't cut it uh, as much as maybe as you might need. And then, uh, yeah, I think I was listening to it again. You know, I'd listened to this one obviously a ton as well, but hearing it again, I was wondering. Uh, if it would still grab me as much as I did as it did, you know, 20 years ago, and I think it really does. It's just uh, such a good start to finish story and album and composition. It, it it's really still impressive to hear.
1: Favorite song?
0: I'm comfortably numb for sure. I know that's an obvious answer. But...
1: That's I mean I don't. There's a lot of potentially obvious answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite non like non, famous like single? Yeah.
0: Uh, maybe goodbye, blue sky. I think
1: goodbye, blue sky is really good. I'm going with nobody
0: home. Mm-hmm. That's a good one too. Because re- I I do love the tonal shift too, from once the wall is up to, you know how how he's the character has kind of changed at this point too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. But uh, how is the know,
1: movie? I still haven't seen the movie.
0: The movie I I have it on DVD. I haven't rewatched it for this episode, but I've seen it many times. I think. It is. It sort of serves as a great, you know, feature-length music video essentially for this. (laughs) Uh, I think I'd have to. I'll try and rewatch it again before the episode gets posted, maybe. But I think it's. It was very cool. I remember liking it a lot, and it it has a lot of animated sections throughout, which are pretty cool. Very very surreal. Um, And I remember Roger Waters having an entertaining commentary track for the DVD, (laughs) but yeah I think it's probably that comes out in 1982 stars Bob Geldof as pink uh, so to answer the question from which you we were here uh, Bob Geldof is pink but sure. uh, the um, yeah I think it's I don't know that you I don't know that it's additive necessarily right I mean if you've listened to it it tells such a clear story anyway it's not like you need any light shined on it but I think they do some cool things with, uh, with how the story is told in the movie you also get a couple extra little bits of like songs that would end up on their next album, Final Cut, which is released in 83, made partially of songs that were written during the Wall period, but then focuses uh, more specifically on Roger, Roger Waters' father's death in World War II. Uh, and that would actually be Waters' last with the group. He would release his first solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, the next year. And in 87, of course, Momentary Lapse of Reason comes out. Uh, and th- between those two Final Cut I don't think Richard Wright is on that album at all because he was kind of feuding with Roger Waters so he's gone off of that album but comes back for a momentary lapse uh, and then they didn't release another studio album until 94 is The Division Bell which was their last album for a long time In 2005 Roger Waters reunites with the three of them to perform at Live 8 charity concert the final time they would all perform together to dedicate the show to Sid Barrett who would sadly pass away the next year pancreatic cancer. And Rick Wright dies of lung cancer in 2008 while working on uh, some new solo material Uh, having played a number of shows with Gilmore just prior to that uh, for his solo album uh, On an Island. And then 2013 Mason and Gilmore decide to dig into the archives of the Division Bell Sessions flesh out some of the unused tracks from that including Wright's original keyboard parts from those times. uh, Release them as The Endless River in 2014 which they have since claimed will be the final Pink Floyd album. Uh, which is pretty cool. It's largely instrumental, but it, it has some cool compositions on there. Uh, Gilmore and Mason did reconvene recently, though, in support of Ukraine. They collaborated with Ukrainian singer Andrei Kalivnuk, who recorded a video of himself singing the Ukrainian anthem, Oh, the Red Vibranium on the Meadow. And as Gilmore was so moved by this, he contacted him along with Mason, and they released it as a single, as Pink Floyd, in support of Ukraine's defense against the Russian invasion. Yeah. Now we pivot to our lists. We've reached the. Uh, we've ranked the albums, picked our top five songs. Go ahead and start with the albums, Aaron. How did they rank for you?
1: All right, uh, going from seven up to one. Uh, mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna disagree a little bit. I'm not sure how much. Uh, number seven, obscured by clouds, for sure. Okay. Number six, Adam Heart mother. Number five, Animals. Number four, Metal. Uh, and then we get to the top three. I'm gonna be slightly iconoclastic. Number three, Dark Side. Number two, Wish You Were Here. Number one, The Wall.
0: Okay. Yeah, there's there's some. Uh, I don't know that any of them are in the same spot. So this is this is interesting. But they aren't <laughs> they aren't all too far off. I don't think. What did you have behind Obscured by Clouds? Well, at number seven, I have Adam Hart-Mother. Oh, uh, okay. All right. I, all right. I do like Obscured by Clouds a little bit more than that. I think just as a whole album. I would listen to that start to finish more often than than Adam Hartmother. Uh, so yeah, number six, Obscured by Clouds. Number five, I have Metal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, number four, I have Wish You Were Here, which puts Animals at number three, The Wall at number two, and number one, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. So I do just, uh, you know, Wish You Were Here and Animals could be flipped at any time, but in the moment, I do just have a little bit of a soft spot for Animals.
1: I think in general, like general consensus, is the Wall and Dark Side are the top two, right? Like I like wish you were here a lot. Uh, I think, I think as a as a complete piece, it's slightly better than Dark Side, but uh, but they're all three really good. Yeah, yeah. I still
0: think uh, Dark Side of the Moon, I think, is almost as perfect an album as there is for me. So I, I, the Wall, is my second favorite, and then everything else I think has its merits, but for me yeah nothing will top dark side i don't think all right now what about top five songs what'd what'd you pick for those all right
1: uh honorable mention to time which i wanted to be in my top five but i had to leave it off Mm -hmm. uh number five off of dark side the great gig in the sky cool four off of the wall, comfortably numb. you were here uh number two is a track off of the wall that we haven't mentioned yet which is mother
0: oh that's a good one
1: That's a great one. And then number one, um, I'm going to cheat and and lump them together. Brain damage and eclipse.
0: Okay, nice. Yeah, I'll count that. we have a little bit of overlap here Uh, and uh, as along with some on here that are probably nowhere near your even top 20 but uh, (laughs) uh, for me number five I put echoes still holds up as a big long song that I think pretty much rules throughout. That is uh, a really good one. As does for me, number four, Dogs. I think it's a great song still. I love that one. Uh, but number three, Wish We Were Here. So we have the same number hey. three song. I think that song's beautiful like I have mentioned before. Number two is where I have Comfortably numb my mm-hmm. favorite track from the wall. Two, two of the best guitar solos of all time in that song. And we didn't really yeah. mention but I love how the first guitar solo is that is more of a major key kind of almost like heavenly floating song that then sets you up for the big cataclysmic solo at the end of the song that just tears the the whole place apart. which of course David Gilmour would play from the top of the wall that they construct on the tour uh, at these shows which puts number one for me at time I think that's still favorite song from the favorite album it's hard to tell
2: yeah we oh
1: We had three songs overlapping in our top six, I guess. So. Yeah. Pretty, yeah pretty oh, what close. would your what would your number six have been?
0: Ooh, number six.
1: What's the one that you left off?
0: Probably, I might go "Great Gig in the Sky" at number six, so that would be even oh. more overlap. There you go. Yeah. I think that yeah, that's that's an incredible song. So that's all for our pink floyd episode if you want more i've got more floyd content on this episode's blog entry which is at acton.wordpress.com You can follow us at on twitter at andyhearsit facebook.com slash It. email us at AndyHearsIt@gmail.com. At like and subscribe and all that wherever you can next time we are closing out our little prog rock section with five albums from all over the world we've heard two of the biggest english prog rock bands now but what, what about the rest of the world what are they up to I wanted to dig in and see what prog rock sounded outside of the UK to so find out next time with us. Uh, thank you to Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Richard Wright, Nick Mason, and Sid Barrett for the excellent music and Nick for the great book. Thank you to everyone for listening and thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you. Until next time, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. Stay safe everybody.